This past week, in an episode of The Briefing, Dr. Al Mohler referenced a letter written by a bishop of the Church of England calling for his church to change its doctrine on sexuality and marriage. This was an open letter posted online. The bishop argued that while he continues to uphold the church's doctrine on marriage and sexuality, that he fundamentally disagrees with it. He argues that in cases where scripture, which influences the church's teaching and tradition, where scripture differs from current thinking on human sexuality, for example, or where science differs from scripture, that it is scripture which must give way to that contemporary thought. He discusses the fact that thinking on human sexuality and marriage have evolved, that's my word, dramatically in recent years. He references his educational background in science and argues that, quote, though there is no scientific certainty about what factors determine sexual orientation, there is a general consensus that it is not a choice, end quote. He discusses at length some various debates that have taken place over time in which the church has adjusted its views based on the discussion of the day, such as the role of women in the home, in a society, and in church. And then he states with honesty and clarity, though for a pastor who's supposed to guard, defend, and proclaim the truth of Scripture, his statements here are difficult to reconcile with that calling. He states, quote, It'll be clear from the above, meaning his arguments, that I do not think there is anything wrong with examining scriptures in light of science and what is happening in the secular world. God is quite capable of speaking to the churches from outside of them. Now again, his whole focus here is on homosexuality in particular, um, homosexual marriage and his desire to affirm this. And one might argue that scripture is clear on the doctrines of sexuality and marriage and therefore anyone who objects would have to discard the clear teaching of scripture. This is not a gray area, in other words. But this bishop of the Church of England goes on to argue that we should simply not take all of the words of scripture literally. And that'll really clear up all the issues. And he goes on in his argument to attempt to make some arguments from his understanding of this non-literal view of Scripture to explain away any objections to his view. Dr. Moeller, in commenting on the bishop's arguments here, cites what he believes to be the basis of his thought process. He stated, quote, this is sometimes known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral, going back to John Wesley, better known as the father of Methodism. The idea is that there are four basic authorities in religion, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And so this bishop is taking that ideology and trying to apply it to this area. And that's exactly the problem, I think. One of the root issues in the Reformation was the insistence that the sole authority for the church is scripture. That's one of the famous solas. We refer to sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority for the church, not science, not tradition, not reason, not experience. Scripture alone. Dr. Moeller describes it this way, quote, the way theologians put it, this is norm. 
the norm. You have norms, and when it comes to Scripture, as Luther put it, he says, Scripture is norma, normans, norm, normata. He says it's one of my favorite statements from Martin Luther, the great reformer, and it simply comes down to this. Scripture is the norm of norms that can't be normed. That is to say, it is the authority of authorities that cannot be compromised. End quote. If we as believers are to stay true to the heart of the Reformation, which itself was an attempt to stay true to the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of Jesus Christ himself, the authoritative authoritative word of God, if we're to stay true to that standard, then we must never compromise in our minds, in our hearts, in our practice, the authority of Scripture by placing anything above Scripture. It is the authority of authorities that cannot be compromised. Now, you either believe that or you don't. If you believe that, then you or anyone else's tradition, reason, or science will never supersede Scripture. If you don't believe that, then you leave yourself open for anything, any idea, any scientific observation, any theory or tradition, any reason to subvert the authority of Scripture in your life. Now, we're not a part of the Church of England, but I share this with you because the secular world has fully embraced this ideology. We talk about ethics those standards or norms that govern our behavior, in the secular world's opinion, these ethics are meant to be adjusted and shifted. They're meant to give way whenever the thought of the day has adjusted or shifted. The secular world has embraced this ideology and it is calling for and celebrating those even within the religious world who embrace this ideology. Why continue to hold to that stuffy, repressive religion concerning human sexuality? Why continue to harm those who hold to a different view, the new ideology? Why not just give in, take a leap, shift your views, let love win, they say. Well, we should let love win. We as the church of Jesus Christ, we as those who have been called from before the foundation of the world to be redeemed in Christ, we who are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, we who are commanded to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God, we are also commanded to walk in love. We are particularly called to walk in the love of God. That's the focus of our text for this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. As we continue... In our series, in the book of Ephesians, we're asking the question, who is the church? What is the church? What should the church be? What should we do? What should be our focus? Paul is continuing in this section with a series of walks, indicating how we ought to walk, how we ought to live, how we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we're instructed to walk in love. And turn there if you haven't. I'll read these six short verses and then we'll go through them in more detail. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexuality, se- sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be giving of thanks. For you may be sure of this, 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let us pray. Again, Father, we thank you for this day and thank you for your word, which is truth. As Jesus said, your word is truth and your word sanctifies us. Do sanctify us this morning by your truth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the command is to walk in love. It is particularly to walk in the love of God. We're commanded to walk in the love of God, number one, because children, beloved children, imitate their parents. It's in chapter 5, verse 1. Number two, because the beloved Christ illuminated God's love through his sacrifice. That's in chapter 5, verse 2. Number three, because contrary living invites the wrath of God, not his love. That's in chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Beloved children imitate their parents. The beloved Christ illuminates God's love through his sacrifice. Contrary living invites the wrath of God, not his love. Let's look at that first point. We are called to walk in love because beloved children imitate their parents. Look again at verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The therefore shows up again in this text as it has frequently indicating a transition to a new section of thought as well as a need for us to consider what came before. In the immediate context prior to this we were reminded of our responsibility to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness of God in Christ is the reason why we are to be forgiving towards one another. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and any kind of malice is not fit for the believer. It is not fit for the believer because we have been forgiven much. And those who are forgiven much ought to love much. They ought to love the one who forgave them and they ought to love others and demonstrate that love for others by their willingness and eagerness to forgive. Paul is continuing in the same thought in this section. The reality of who God is and what he has done for us ought to be the driving factor for how we relate to one another. The truth of who God is should move us to live as he does. Paul clarifies this in our section when he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. The tense used here suggests that it is an ongoing action. We are to be constantly seeking to imitate God. To imitate God is to use, to imitate is to use someone or something as a model. We get our English word mimic from the original. To imitate is to look upon as a model, to follow a model, to mold yourself after someone or something. To imitate. Christians are to be imitators of God. We are imitators of God as beloved children. We are to imitate God as beloved children Because we have been loved by God, because we love God, we are to imitate him. That is what beloved children do. We have been chosen by God and adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 
Jesus, the beloved one, the beloved son of God, is the one in whom we are blessed. Chapter 1, verse 6. We are members of the household of God. Chapter 2, verse 19, in Christ. We all have one God and Father who is over all. Chapter 4, verse 6. We are his beloved children. Why is the Christian ethic regarding sexuality different from the world? Well, again, what do I mean by the Christian ethic? What do I mean by ethics regarding sexuality? It's just what I said in the beginning. It's the set of principles, standards, and norms by which we live. It is our thought regarding human sexuality and practice which governs our behavior. Where does that come from for the believer? Should it come from the doctrine of the church? Should it be based on scripture? Is it possible for it to give way to the thought process of the world? Well, this text reminds us that we are children of God. We are in the beloved and therefore are beloved children of God. As beloved children of God, it is our duty to please and imitate our father. Not anyone else. We are to be imitators of the word, not the world. That is, in fact, how we come to know what it means to imitate God. We come to know him through his word. I referenced Psalm 19 last week. The word of God is how God speaks to us. It's how he communicates to us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and are righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold are they. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And keeping them, there is great reward. We are warned, we are guided by God's word, by his truth. Psalm 1 says that we are blessed by God by delighting in his word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And the reason in verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We would not know God in any significant way except through his word, by meditating on his word day and night. And we are blessed because God upholds our way as we meditate on his word day and night as we meditate on his truth. Now, there are many things in the word of God that we learn about God, but there are clearly some things which are emphasized to underscore their importance. I frequently reference the repetition of the declaration that God made to Moses when he hid Moses in a cleft of the rock in Exodus 34. Moses prayed, God, show me your glory, and this is what God proclaimed to him this is what he said he said the lord the lord god compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that statement is repeated frequently throughout the old testament and we see each of those elements of his character re-emphasized in the new testament as we talk about who god is and think about his goodness but interestingly there is only one attribute of god that is mentioned in the superlative rc sproul said it this way even though many may comment on 
the love of God, and they frequently talk about the fact that God is love. He said, the Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or grace, grace, grace. The Bible says what? He is holy, holy, holy. And it's a reference to Isaiah 6. Of all the things that the angels flying around the throne of God could have said, of all the things they could have focused on or sang about concerning God, this was it. He is holy, holy, holy. And again, that's for emphasis. That's to underscore the truth of who he is. The essential truth of who he is. Those who were around him the most, closest to him. This is what they walked away from. After spending an eternity flying around the face of God, this is what they proclaimed. That God is holy, holy, holy. To say that God is holy means that he is separate. He is distinct. He is set apart. There is no one like him. Yes, he is morally pure, untainted by sin. In a packet, it says that he is too pure even to look upon evil. But in his essence, his holiness speaks of his otherness. He is God and there is no other. There is no one like him. Again, these angels in heaven, these seraphim, these burning ones who had the privilege of attending to the throne of God. This is the one thing that impacted them the most and that they had to just cry out in proclamation that he is holy. Well, we are his children and therefore we ought to be holy as he is holy. First Peter chapter one, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He says this is to be true of us in all of our conduct. First John says it slightly differently. We hear it. First John read earlier this morning, chapter three. In love, we are called to be his children. Therefore, we ought to be holy. First John, chapter three, verses one through three. See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are now God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And he says this. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have the hope that you are called a child of God. If you have the hope that you will be made like Jesus when he returns. When he's revealed. Then you ought to purify yourself just as he is pure. If we are to constantly seek to imitate God back in our text in Ephesians 5 as beloved children, then we should constantly seek to be holy. We are to be distinct, separate, set apart unto him, even as he is distinct, separate, set apart from all other things. We are to be morally pure as he is morally pure. In other words, our ethic regarding sexuality ought to be his ethic regarding sexuality, not redefined by the world or by reason of science, but always and forever defined by him in his word. And whatever our ethic regarding sexuality is, it ought to lead us to, as his beloved children, to be obedient children, to be holy as he is and not to be like the world. 
the world will tell you that what you believe is wrong, it's old, it's outdated, you need to get with the program. Everybody's doing it, but that's because they don't know our father. They're not his children. So, of course, they will not see reason to follow his word. And in fact, they will go out of their way to discount his word, to discredit it. But that should not be true for us. We are beloved children of God. We have experienced the love of God. Therefore, we ought to desire to imitate him and not the world. Well, it's not just holiness in general that should characterize us. But again, specifically in this text, the focus is on love. The way we love ought to be holy. It ought to be holy as the love of God is holy. Our love ought to reflect his love. That's the point. That leads us to our point number two. The beloved son of God in whom we are made children of God illuminates God's love through his sacrifice. Verse two. Be imitators as children of God, Paul says. Verse two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to imitate God. We are to be holy, and particularly in light of all the confusion of this day, as it was confusing in Paul's day, Paul affirmed in no uncertain terms that the holiness of God and our pursuit of holiness as the children of God must apply to the way we love. As imitators of God, we are to walk in love. Well, there's no greater expression of the love of God than in Christ. Again, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What does the love of God look like? People talk about God is love all the time, but they never quite define what God's love is supposed to look like. While the word of God defines it for us, it is the perfect son of God, the holy and righteous son of God, hanging on a cross and dying for the sins of the world. Jesus, the son of God, who lived to do the will of God, to imitate what he saw his father doing, the one who perfectly explains the father, he loved us as demonstrated by the fact that he gave himself up for us. Yes, Jesus was taken to the cross. Yes, Jesus was sent to the cross. Yes, the Jews brought false accusations against him before Pilate. Yes, Pilate ultimately condemned him to the death on the cross. But the reality is that Jesus gave himself up on the cross. In his own words, he said, the son of man did not come to serve, but to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he did. He gave his life. The love of God is a love which gives. The love of God is a love which sacrifices. The love of God does not take. It is not self-oriented. It is not selfish. The love of God pursues the great good of others by first giving. Again, Jesus gave himself up for us. We are sinners. We dishonored the glory of God. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus gave himself up for us so that we wouldn't have to face the punishment of God. You cannot divorce the love of God from the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. That is how it is displayed. I think sometimes when we read passages where it says that Christ died for us, we think about it in a passive way, that he passively went to the cross. Again, he was taken there and therefore died there. But the point and purpose of all of those things is to affirm that Jesus intentionally gave his life for us. As we were approaching the Advent season, we looked at John chapter 10, where Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. 
And there specifically, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay it down so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Jesus' love was sacrificial. He gave up his life. It was for the good of others that he gave up his life. And it was ultimately for the glory of God. Again, he gave up his life for our good, but also in obedience to his father. He said, this charge I have received from my father. John says in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The love of the world says that I must have and do what I want. I must pursue my greatest good. I must find my own identity in whatever self-expression that I have and you must be okay with it. The world says I must pursue whatever form of sexuality I desire in my flesh and you must be okay with it. For love to win, I must be able to do whatever I want, whatever I choose to do, whatever makes sense for me, whatever feels good to me, whatever benefits me, whatever gives me my best life now. The love of the world says that everyone ought to feel fulfilled and affirmed in what they think is right for them. To take what they think is right for them. And then we must give way for their own sense of self-fulfillment. One author said it this way, The world claims to want love, and love is advocated and praised from every corner. Romantic love is especially touted. Songs, novels, movies, television series continually exploit emotional, lustful desire as if it were genuine love. Questing for and fantasizing about the perfect love is portrayed as the ultimate human experience. It should not be surprising that the misguided quest for that kind of love leads to inevitably to immorality and impurity because that kind of love is selfish and destructive, a deceptive counterfeit of God's love. It is always conditional and always self-centered. It is not concerned about commitment but only satisfaction. It is not concerned about giving but only getting. It is no basis for performance because its purpose is to use and exploit rather than to serve and to help. It lasts until the one loved no longer satisfies or until he or she disappears for someone else. End quote. The love of God says you must give for the benefit of others. You must sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's not about your fulfillment. It's about the good of those around you. Deny yourself for the good of others. That's the example that Jesus left for us. And ultimately, deny yourself for the good of others so that you might bring them to God. This is a part of what makes the love of God a holy love. Yes, it is a love that seeks to deny oneself. It is a love that seeks to sacrifice. It is a love that seeks the greatest good of others. But ultimately, that love seeks the greatest good of others for the glory of God, to bring them to God. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for us. He didn't just die for us to be better people. He died to bring us to God. And I think that's what the world is missing. Well, among other things. That even if they have a kind of love that seeks to make much of other people, of someone else, that they seek to make much of someone else as an end. They seek to love just for love's sake. 
But that's not God's love. That's not the kind of love that Christ had for us. He sought to love us, to sacrifice for us so that he might bring us to God, so that God might be glorified in us. And so any love that we have, the kind of love that we have, also should model this truth. Our love ought to be a sacrificial love which seeks the good of others to bring them to God for the glory of God. If you want a definition of God's love, that's it. It's a sacrificial kind of love which seeks the good of others to bring them to God for the glory of God. It's not just for you and is not just for them. Back in our text, Paul says that the sacrifice of Jesus, this kind of sacrificial love is what pleases God. Look at the end of verse 2. He says that it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It was a fragrant offering. It was a sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. It was a sweet-smelling aroma, a delightful-smelling sacrifice. It was acceptable to God, the kind of love that Jesus showed to us. Again, the world tries to talk about love. They'll even try to talk about the love of God, that the love of God means we should never judge, that God's love means we should accept anyone and everyone no matter what. God's love means we should celebrate whatever form of sexuality and expression of love a person conceives of. But that's not what this text says. This text says that God is pleased only with Jesus' expression of love, with his kind of love. His expression of love was sacrificial. Again, in obedience to his father who commanded him to lay down his life so that he might bring others to glory. You would be hard-pressed to find that kind of love in the world. And again, John says, that we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I wonder if that defines your love, the way you love others. A sacrificial kind of love which seeks the good of others to bring them to God for his glory. Does that define your love within your homes, in your marriages, as parents or grandparents, as children? as brothers and sisters, as members of one another in the body of Christ. Is the love of Christ your standard, Christian? Do you strive to love others as God in Christ has loved you? Do you give up yourself for one another, actively pursuing obedience to God and the good of one another above your own good? Is that your kind of love, Christian? We should walk in love because beloved children imitate their fathers. We should walk in love because Christ imitate, illuminates the love of God through his sacrifice. And third, we should walk in love because contrary living invites the wrath of God, not his love. Verses 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be giving, there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." 
walking in the love of God, having a holy love as God's love is holy, loving in that way, the way that is sacrificial, which seeks the good of others to bring them to God for the glory of God is not a matter of ideology alone. There is a very real and tangible reason why we ought to walk in love as imitators of God. Paul says to fail to do this is contrary to the truth of who we are as children of God, and it invites God's wrath. He says walking in any other way is contrary to what it means to be a child of God. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but rather the giving of thanks. Again, Paul is narrowing his focus here. He's trying to be specific. How do we apply these truths? He says this is the opposite of what it looks like. He says these things are not proper among saints. They're not fitting. They're out of place for you. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness. Sexual immorality covers anything in regards to human sexuality outside of the will of God. Yes, that includes homosexuality. It includes any act of sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography. He also mentions all impurity. This includes things that may not involve the act of sex but are still impure in the sight of God. Things contrary to the revealed will of God. Any kind of sexual expression, even gender confusion, apart from the revealed will of God. The word covetousness there gives regard to the practice of these things with selfish intent. Some translations translate the word with greediness. And so there's a relentless pursuit, a self-oriented pursuit of these things with no boundaries. Generally speaking, sexual immorality is all about taking. It's about pursuing one's own personal pleasure. Again, there may be that element of a desire to please another, but even that is marred with selfishness if it's a pursued apart from the revealed will of God. True love should seek to do and encourage others to do only what would please God, not the opposite. Again, if we defined God's love in this way, It is a sacrificial love which seeks the good of others to bring them to God for the glory of God. It is not selfish. It does not pursue its own good. It has in mind the effect that this sin will have on one's relationship with God. Not just about the other person. Consider Joseph in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39. Potiphar's wife attempted to lie with him, and you remember his response. He said in Genesis 39, my master has put everything in my charge. He has not kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There was a bit of a transition there if you weren't reading carefully enough. He says, yes, my master is the one whom I serve. And if I were to do this, I would be dishonoring my master because you are his wife. But more than that, if I were to do this, this would be a great wickedness and sin against my God. It didn't matter that she desired him. He may have even desired her. 
The world would have easily rationalized this by saying that they had a legitimate desire for one another. Their love was real. They would have been following their hearts, right? Many people do rationalize that kind of behavior today. They'd say that it wouldn't have been exploitation. It wouldn't have been wrong because she was willing and desiring to do this with him. But Joseph said no. Because ultimately the issue is not just about the fact that I would be dishonoring my master. It's about the fact that I would be dishonoring my God. Scripture says in such issues that we must flee from sexual immorality. And Joseph exhibited that truth way before Paul even said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as he ran away from this woman. We're to flee immorality, not play around with it, not tiptoe around it, not try to resist it with it staring us in the face. We're to flee because to do otherwise would be to dishonor our God. It is not fitting for us. Back in our text, again, Paul says that in verse 3. These things, sexual immorality, covetousness, should not even be named among us because it's not proper. It's not fitting. It doesn't fit the picture of those who are called saints. To be a saint is to be a holy one. It is to be set apart by God, in God, to imitate God. Our first responsibility is to God. It is to walk in his steps. That's ultimately, again, what makes sexual immorality wrong. That's what makes it sin. It's not just a matter of us exploiting others or dishonoring others. It's that it dishonors God. And that's not fitting for those who are to be holy as he is holy. Walking in a way that doesn't reflect the love of God is contrary to what it means to be a child of God. That includes the way we speak. We spent some time last week covering this as well. Paul is reiterating and and really applying it to this issue of sexual immorality. He says that even our speech ought to be holy. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We are bombarded with this, are we not? Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, all over social media, all over television, all throughout movies we watch, all in print. We were talking the other day, and I don't even know why we were talking about it, but about the presidential debates and how quickly those things derail and, and go off into foolish conversation. And um, crude jokes or jabs or slanders against one another, and these are from our nation's leaders. But it's so easy for us to be filled with those things, for us as believers to hear those things as a part of the daily conversation of those around us and to be filled with those things ourselves. Paul reminds us that our words ought to be filled with grace toward one another. And in fact, our lips ought to be used primarily for the giving of thanks. We should have words of thanksgiving to share with one another, not crude jokes, not filthiness, not foolish talk. Those things are out of place for the saint, the holy one, the one who's been adopted by God, brought into his family. One author said it this way. Sexual sin 
greed, corrupt talk are all about self-centered ways of thinking. We sin in these ways when we seek to gratify our sinful desires. But thanksgiving is the attitude that says, thank you for your generosity, Father. You have given me everything I need. I don't need to go looking for substitute gods for pleasure and joy. Well, not only is this kind of contrary living unfit for the child of God, it also invites the wrath of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 5, Paul says that those who live that way cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says those who are sexually immoral or impure or covetous, all of what we just talked about, those who pursue the world's ethic in regards to sexuality, which anything goes, anything which satisfies you goes, those have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says they are not his children. Anyone who claims to be a child of God and yet who pursues the world's ethic regarding sexuality and not that which is clearly defined in the word of God is a liar and the truth is not in them. This is the word of God speaking. The word of God draws the line in the sand here. You are either for him or against him. You are either with him or you have been rejected by him. You cannot be both. There are no homosexual Christians. There are no transgender Christians. There are no gender fluid Christians. Because Christ does not abide anything apart from his glory. Again, we read 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, this is not perfection, by the way. This is practice, the practice of your life, the habit or characterization of your life. You should not be characterized by anything other than the Lord Jesus, his holiness, his righteousness, his truth. The only kind of Christian the word of God recognizes are those who live as the father in heaven, those who seek to imitate him. Those who seek to love as Jesus loves, sacrificially, giving, not taking, serving, not demanding. Again, God is love, and those who are born of God ought to love, but their love is to be defined by the love of God. That is what makes clear that you are a Christian, not just some or any standard of love, but walking in the standard of love defined by God, having a sacrificial kind of love which seeks the good of others, to bring them to God for his glory. There is no inheritance for those who live otherwise. 
He says, you will not see his kingdom. Verse six, again, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who do not pursue God's standard of morality, God's sexual ethic are in his view, sons of disobedience. They're not his children. They're children of disobedience. Paul used the same term earlier in chapter two. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that does not work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all formerly lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was a description of those who were apart from Christ or before they came to faith in Christ, not those who are in Christ. To God, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They walk according to the course of the world, of the prince of the power of the air. They are sons of disobedience and they are children deserving of wrath. And we know that wrath is coming. Paul says in Acts 17 that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That day is coming. That day is fixed. It's on a calendar. It may not be on our calendar, but it is on God's calendar. And that day is coming. The description of the kingdom of God in Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, outside of the city, outside of the kingdom are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Again, the world says that God is love. He would never judge. Love should win. Love should prevail over all things. According to the word of God, yes, God is love, but he will not tolerate those who reject his love displayed in Christ. He will not accept those who choose to love in a way other than what he's prescribed in his word. He has wrath for those who reject the truth of who he is. That wrath is real, that wrath is eternal, and that wrath is coming. Let no one deceive you. Christianity is not about a bunch of people getting together and thinking they're better than anyone else. Pursuing a biblical ethic regarding human sexuality is not about us following the letter of some old stuffy ancient text. It's not about us trying to be different and say that we're better and trying to bring harm to those who think otherwise or trying to be bigoted and to hurt feelings of others. Christianity is about Christ. It's about us being in Christ by faith. It's about us being adopted into the family of God by Christ, faith in Christ. Therefore, it is about us desiring to be like our father as beloved children. We want to do what's pleasing to him. We have not always been this way. We are not perfect in this, but we are striving to live according to the standard of new life that has been given to us in Christ. As a part of the family of God. We have been called to walk in love, to have a sacrificial kind of love which seeks the good of others to bring them to God for the glory of God. Children imitate their parents. We are to live according to God's revealed will in order to imitate our Father in heaven. He is holy, thus we are to be holy. Christ, the beloved one who has made us beloved by faith in him, has illuminated the love of God through his sacrifice. 
He sacrificially gave himself up for us on the cross to bring us to God. Contrary living to the revealed will of God, choosing to love selfishly invites not his favor but his wrath. Now remember, this is a message for Christians. It is to remind us that we dare not compromise the standard of love and holiness given to us by our Father in heaven. This is what we have been called to. We have been called to walk in love, to walk in his love. We have been called to pursue his standard of love, which is better, greater, and more satisfying as it allows us to imitate our Father in heaven. One author said it this way. Believers have a God more satisfying than sexual sin and greed. A God worthy of endless thanksgiving. A God who has given them a kingdom. Worship the triune God alone and not cheap substitutes. And I would leave you with those truths. Worship the God alone and not cheap substitutes. May God make that true of each and every one of us. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the reminder that you are our Father in heaven. We thank you for the reminder that as your children, by faith in Christ, we ought to walk in your steps. We ought to love as you loved. Thank you for the illustration of love that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder that those who choose to live in any other way, who pursue the world's form of love, are in your view children of wrath, deserving your judgment, and have been rejected from your kingdom. Father, help us not to crave their cheap substitute of love, but help us to crave your more glorious love, your more satisfying love, the love that honors you, a sacrificial servant giving kind of love that seeks for the good of others and ultimately seeks that for your glory. Make that true of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.